This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. It is New York Fashion Week. When you're hearing this, it will no longer be New York Fashion Week, but um, I have New York Fashion Week on the brain, and I wanted to chat about it a little bit. I remember years ago, perhaps a decade at this point, getting invited to my very first fashion show. It was a Robert Geller show, which I was particularly excited about because Geller, Robert Geller, shares a last name with Sarah Michelle Geller. And though there's no relation at all, it felt, you know, a little bit kismet that my first New York Fashion Week show would be one that happened to share a last name with with my icon. So I was really excited until it came time to get ready for the show. I had never been to a show before, obviously, and uh, I was trying to figure out what one wears to a show. And at this point, I did not have a friend group um, that was predominantly people within the fashion industry, so I didn't really have anyone to ask. So anyway, I'm rifling through my closet, and it's about maybe an hour before the show, because I'm prompt by nature, and I can't find anything. But rather than put like the things back on the hangers, fold them back up, etc., I just started throwing them into a pile on the floor right in front of my closet. And that pile, if this was a film montage, you would get, you know, the dissolve between the piles getting bigger, dissolve, bigger, dissolve, bigger. Until I was just like, I can't find anything to wear. So at that point, I sunk into the pile and fell into a despair. That is probably, in retrospect, deeply overdramatic, but also like... I don't want to be dismissive of my feelings. And in that moment, it felt very like, you know, the four walls of my life were folding in. I'm not proud of it, but I also like have to accept that this is me, right? It's like I can be not proud of a thing, but also acknowledge that like, that's me. And I think I'm working on it. But even if I'm not working on it, it's okay to sort of like live with flaws. So that is me. I collapse in. So here we are now. 10 years later, I'm a bit more familiar, not a bit, I'm much more familiar with going to the shows now and sort of know the process. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how that works. Because one thing that's interesting is like, I'll have these moments when I go to, you know, a brand that I really, really like, 
and I get really, really great. I get a great seat. I'm given a great seat. And I feel in that moment very affirmed in the sense that like I've, I'm someone in the fashion industry. What that means, who knows? But it's just like in the scheme of someone's versus no one's, I'm skewing someone. And that makes me really happy because I've worked really hard and I really like the fashion industry. This year and last, actually this has been going on for a while, but I think it's exacerbated recently. And before I tee this, like what I'm about to say up, I thought about not talking about it on the podcast because I was like, it's such a privileged thing to talk about. The idea of getting invited to these shows and, you know, having your calendar filled up with events that a lot of people very much want to go to. I get it. Um, but I'm frustrated <laughs> by something. And again, I ultimately came down on the side of I have to be me, even if I don't come off likable in this moment, because I actually think. I've been thinking about this recently. There's a lot of aspects of me that are not likable. Um, there's a concept, likability. How important is it? Something I do not have the answer to. Anyway, it's going to sound a certain way, and I'm just going to say it. So I am frustrated. I have a lot of friends that are showing in New York Fashion Week. And for me, there are two reasons why I go to New York Fashion Week at this point. One is because I want to be there. I'm, I'm a fan of the brand, or it's important to me um, to see the collection in person, but more often, especially when it's an, like an, a, an establishing designer, I go because I've, you know, perhaps followed them on Instagram for a long time and interact with a lot of their work and, and want the opportunity to meet them and, and get the vibe of the show because so much or so often the collection itself is informed by the atmosphere created at the show. And you learn a lot about a brand. Um, obviously, the most important aspect of a brand is the clothing. But there's also sort of like, you know, look at a brand like Telfar, for instance, where the brand is very much about community as much as it is clothes. And these runway shows or runway presentations present an opportunity for the brand to tell a story outside of its clothing or to use the clothing within a larger canvas. So that's one reason why I really enjoy going. So there was a time for a while uh, when Fashion Week was more or less held in one place. And I think that place, not I think, and that place is Bryant Park, which we've seen, you know, in countless movies. I always think about that scene in season six of Sex and the City when they're at New York Fashion Week, the tents at Bryant Park, and those... Uh, uh, those PETA people come and they <laughs> throw like tar or something on Samantha because she's wearing fur. And she's like affirmed by the experience, which is like amazing. So Samantha. Um, so it was in these places for a while. And then now over time, it's sort of expanded. It no longer has like a hub. There have been several seasons where a lot of the shows have been held at Spring Studios, um, which is like around Tribeca, just north of Tribeca. But that's not really the case anymore. Everyone sort of does it somewhere. So for instance, Christian Siriano just did it um, at Elizabeth Taylor's old home, which I believe is on the Upper West Side. Maybe it's on the Upper East Side. Fact check me, please. Um, and they're kind of all about now. And it's wonderful. It's exciting because it sort of allows these designers the opportunity to, you know, again, use that canvas and, and expand the idea of what their brand can be. The challenge of it is I do not work for an outlet that pays for a car service. Back in the day that I've learned from so many of my friends that have been in the industry longer than I have, 
You would work for a magazine that would provide you with a car and a driver throughout Fashion Week. If you were ever going from place to place, not even so much as a perk, but really just as a practicality, right? There are lots of places you need to get to. It's easier if you know you have a car waiting for you. Anyway, like many industries, the fashion industry has shrunk. Uh, budgets have dried up. And as a result, a lot of these shows are populated by people like me that are freelancers. So anyway, there's a show tonight. It's a friend of mine. I really wanted to go. I go and look online because I always subway to the shows. I never take a car. And it was not, you were not able to get there strictly by subway. I would have had this take the subway to a bus and then walked. I looked at the possibility of taking just the subway, but that walk was over 15 minutes and it's over 80 degrees right now and I will show up sweating. And let me just tell you, this is another aspect of this fashion week, the one that takes place in September, is it's often really hot and I am a sweater. I'm often so sweaty that like in a room full of people that are not sweating, I'll be the one sweating. So I decide that I'm going to just get a car for this one. Um, it seemed worthwhile to me. And then I figured I would walk home after because by that point, I don't mind if I get sweaty because I don't have to be seen by anyone. And mind you, I really tried to like pull a look for this show. I did. Like I, I tried different things. I like to try different things at these shows as far as like, oh, I would typically, I would never pair this pant with this shoe, but let's do it. Or like I'll over accessorize, which I really like. I'll try different hats. It's just like, it's fun. It's fashion. Anyway, I'm all dressed up, ready to go. 40 minutes before the show, the show's about 20 minutes away, I order one of the wait and saves, $13. About 15 minutes later, it should be here any minute, the car cancels, I'm then going online, by this point I have to get a new car, and I have to sacrifice doing the wait and save, I have to do the full price one, because I can't wait another 20 minutes, I have to get there. And it just got to the point where, so I then order the one that's the, you know, coming right away, but it's 6 p.m. on a, a weeknight, and I could not find a car that would come in time. And I ultimately decided I'm not going to go. I'm not going to pay all of this money to show up late to the show that's already started to be turned away. I had that happen already last season. Don't get me started on that. And so I just decided not to go to the show. And the reason why I'm frustrated, not with this designer, more the system, but then I'm also like, isn't it wonderful that like these fashion shows are all over the city? Yes, that is wonderful. But... The stress of it is, and mind you, I was just at a show an hour ago. So I had to go out for that one, then come back to my apartment. That was deep in Brooklyn. And because all of these shows are compressed into this six-day event known as Fashion Week, it's really challenging for people like me who do not have the budget to take cars everywhere. It's frustrating um, to miss shows even though like you tried. And I hate it because I like this designer. It's like 10 years ago, I was the kid, you know, sitting at the foot of my closet in that pool of clothes. And now here I am 10 years later, no longer the kid in the clothes. I'm sitting here in the clothes and I still can't find my way in. But maybe there's a metaphor here. Maybe there's a metaphor. So here I am all dressed up, nowhere to go. Actually, me again, 20 minutes later, some perspective gained. Okay, so I've thought about it, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with the system. It's frustrating having to get from place to place, no doubt, but me not going means someone that was having that was going to be standing during the show will have a seat. And you know what? I have other things on my mind as well. Um, it is because I'm 
getting engaged this weekend. I am about to propose to my boyfriend, Billy, tomorrow. I sought out his parents, got permission, the whole thing. And so this is a recording. This is the last moments of my pre-engaged self. And I'm going to not let Fashion Week occupy my mind, but instead, you know, get into the headspace of an engaged person because that is a, a check mark on a box that I will check beginning tomorrow. Unless he said no, I think he's going to say yes. And I like some things planned, some things I'm sort of um, leaving to, uh, I was going to say God, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm leaving to some higher power, if you will. Um, But I got really good flowers that I'm really excited about that I know he'll gag over. Anyway, signing out as my non-engaged self and signing over to an interview with Hannah Einbinder, which I participated in when I was not engaged because I was not yet engaged, but now when you're listening to this, I'm engaged. Okay, it's me again. I did the damn thing. I got engaged. This is how I sound in my post-engaged form. So maybe you notice a subtle difference in, I don't know, the cadence or, or, the, or the tone of my voice. And that's because this is me now. I'm different than I was before. And I wanted to give a little bit of a post-engagement recap, if you will, a rundown of how things unfolded. Um, so I knew this was going to happen. I think that Billy expected it to happen around our four-year anniversary back in June, but I just wasn't ready. Um, I knew that I needed to ask his parents. It just, I, I knew that, I know his parents are very traditional and it just felt really difficult. Like the idea of asking them to meet in person and then reveal this information to them. But Billy, who we have talked about our engagement, like the inevitability of it, And he had said to me that it was not necessary that I seek out his parents. But I knew deep down, or I felt rather, that it was necessary. So I went back and forth for some time about, you know, if I was going to do it, how I was going to do it. Do I send a text message asking them to meet? Where do we meet? Do I send it as an email? Do I call them? But if I call them and it's only one person on the phone, do I ask the other person to get on the phone too? There was just so much in my mind about how to do it. It was giving me so much anxiety that finally (laughs) I found the courage and uh, I met with them. They were so kind and so sweet. And I could tell that they were really glad to have been given the opportunity to, to learn this news in advance. I decided not to tell my parents because although my parents knew it was coming too, there was an, and that similar inevitability that they felt my parents have been through it, to say the least, in the last couple of weeks, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to, rather than preempt them about good news, just deliver the good news. So so then I came down to planning the actual, um, how I was going to do it. And I went back and forth. Okay, so part of me was like, let's go to Obernburg, New York, which for longtime listeners of the pod, you know that was where Billy and I first moved during the beginning of the pandemic. But then there was a lot of like logistics involved of like, how do we get there and why, like, why are, how do I convince him about, like, why we're going? And it just, it seemed more complicated than it was worth. And then I was like, okay, let's think. Are, are there places in the city that are that significant to us? I couldn't think of any that really felt like the place for us. And then I was like, oh, there is this beach, Maidstone Beach. It's in the Springs section of the Hamptons. And we've gone there on several occasions with our family, sometimes just the two of us, to watch the sunset. Billy loves a sunset. Um, I mean, a lot of people do. But, like, you know, he loves a sunset. So 
at that point, I'm like, okay, well, we're going to Maidstone Beach. And conveniently, I was like, my brother and sister-in-law live about five minutes from that beach. And I was like, oh, they could come and take some photos of us afterwards because I wanted photos, but I didn't want like a photographer. You know what I mean? I, I wanted just, I wanted it to seem just as it was. I didn't want it to be like a staged moment. And yet I, you know, it was important that we had the memories of what I imagined was going to be a very significant moment in, in or not moment, a significant chapter in the book of our lives, whatever. Oh, speaking of books, I should mention. So I, okay. So when we were first planning this engagement, or we, when I was, I decided to write sort of like the story of our relationship and, you know, a cute little thing. And then I was like, it would end basically by saying like, can you look up from the book? Because, you know, this is the, I, w- I want us to write the next chapter together. Can I just tell you, getting a book bound, not easy. I tried to like go through like this company that was suggested to me by a friend and they would write me back and being like, you need to reformat to this size and, and all this stuff. And it's like, I don't do technology. So I reached out to my assistant and I was like, do you mind taking care of this for me? And he encountered the same thing where they were like trying to make this into like, they thought that this was like a book for that people were going to purchase and they wanted to get it right. And I was like, no, 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 I just need text on paper and this picture on the cover. It's not that complicated. They were like, oh, this photo is so low res. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Anyway, finally found my way over to Etsy, thanks to a friend of mine, got the book printed. I hid the rings and the book in my drawer, my bottom drawer that has all of my running stuff in it because I was like, Billy will never go in this drawer. Funny enough, there have been like so many occasions over the last few months where he's opened the drawer looking for something else that was lost and been so close to finding the rings. And part of me was like, well, I should move it somewhere safer. But like Billy's just the kind of person where he's like a rummager. So it's like, there's just, it's hard to know Hard for there to be a spot that I can be certain he won't look. In retrospect, I could have I could have done better, but I didn't. He didn't find it, though. So I'm like, okay, we're going to do it. This speech in the Hamptons, parents told them, check. I have the rings, check. I have the book written, check. And then at the last minute, I was like, you know what? I need to have some other. I want, I want there to be some other things. So... My boyfriend, for those that don't know, is a software engineer and he makes, like, he designs art sometimes using code. Code, like code, like a, I don't know. I I would try to explain it to you, but I think it's it's better if I don't because I'll reveal how little I actually know. But he makes art out of code. So I took that art, I blew it up, I turned it into, like, a pattern, and then I had that printed on fabric. I had, like, fabric made out of, out of one of his uh, coding art pieces. My friend, Fernando Garcia, uh, helped with that. Thank you, Fernando. I had that printed. I brought that with me. And then I ordered flowers from Avando, who's our our favorite New York florist. If you're not familiar with them, please don't get familiar because I don't want to blow up their spot because I love them so much and I want it to stay kind of an if-you-know-you-know thing. But here I am mentioning it. Love Avando, though, really do. Hope they'll do our wedding. Um not sponsored. Anyway, I got the flowers, had them delivered to the Hamptons to my uh, brother and sister-in-law's house. Meanwhile, Billy is being so difficult about coming out to the Hamptons because he was like, why, he, you know, he was like, we haven't had a weekend in the city in some time. It's the middle of New York Fashion Week. He was like, why are you leaving in the middle of Fashion Week? And I was like, well, you know, I'm just, I'm really over the fashion industry. I had to, you know, make up a whole thing about how like, I just really needed this getaway. 
he was so resistant because we're here back in the Hamptons now because my parents are here. And he was like, why can't we just wait a week? And I was like, no, 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 I have to go to the Hamptons. Finally convince him to come out here. And then it becomes like a big logistical nightmare because I'm like, I have to get all of these things arranged, like get him to the beach, like create a very significant moment that he doesn't know about. Like it has to appear like it's just another night for him, but I have to have all the ducks in a row. So I have the flowers delivered to my brother and sister-in-laws, as I said, and then I'm like, okay, but how do I get the flowers? Because I can't just like arrive in the Hamptons and be like, oh, bye, Billy. So I tell Billy that we're going to my brother and sister-in-laws to pick up the fire pit because we're gonna have we're gonna have a little fire on the beach and then we're gonna go to dinner. This was all true. So we go. I have my sister-in-law distract Billy while my brother and I load up the car. We put the flowers in the back seat and I'm like just praying Billy doesn't see them. And then we put all the fire pit stuff into the trunk. Okay, Billy's distracted. We bring him outside, get him in the car. At that point, I'm like, oh my God, he's gonna smell the flowers. Like they're like there's they're literally fresh orchids. Like he's gonna smell them. I roll the windows down as soon as we get into the car. He doesn't see them, doesn't smell them. I'm like, Phew. We get to the beach. I'm like trying to figure out, oh, by the way, rings. How do I get the rings? Okay, so, and also I'm like, how do I bring this giant ass book? How do I get it to the beach without him seeing? So this is going to sound a lot more clever than it actually was in practice, but I'm not going to explain it too much so that it seems, I want, I want you to feel it was clever. So I created a false bottom in the picnic basket and I put the ring and the book that I had made in the false bottom. So we get to the beach. It's all in the basket there. He has no idea. I place it down. But he's like, oh, did you get the uh, the beach chairs? And I'm like, oh, my God. No, I didn't. So I race back to my brother and sisters. They live five minutes from the beach, grab the chairs. But the whole time I'm racing there, I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to discover the false bottom. Because that's just, that's Billy. Again, he's a rummager. He's going to rummage around in the picnic basket and discover this. And it's all going to blow up. Fortunately, he didn't. I race back to the beach. I've got the beach chairs. And at that point, I'm like, okay, how am I going to do this? And then I was like, you know what? Stop trying to create a moment and figure it out. I, I feel like one of the things that I try to do in life, because I have those typical anxieties that come around big moments, you know? And I think what I try and just do in those moments is take a deep breath and let go and like trust in the process. And I was like, listen, I have, I've, I have prepared for this day stop trying to make this, you know, this historic moment in my life and just accept the fact that like it's going to be historic by nature. I'm I am proposing. So how however that happens, you know, you know, just let go. So I took a breath. Uh so we get to the beach and I mentioned the fact that, you know, we haven't had the opportunity to celebrate our 50 month, which was a few months ago, and I'm like that's what this is about. So I was like I got you a little something. So I run back to the car, um and that's when I get the fabric. And then I present the fabric to him. He's like, oh, this is amazing. I was like, oh, actually, I forgot something. Then I go back to the car again. This time, I grab the flowers. And then I'm like, oh, I forgot something again. Oh, wait, it's in the picnic basket. And at that point, I reveal the false bottom to the picnic basket, take that out, give him the book. He starts reading the book. He realizes what's happening um, quickly into the book because he's a rummager. He's also perceptive. Um, He figured it out. He gets very, very emotional. I finally take the ring out. I propose to him. All the stuff that happens during a proposal happens. He says yes. And it was just an incredible, incredible moment. Um, If you've not seen the video, I I asked him immediately afterwards, 
Um, so we're engaged and he says, if you insist, because I insisted. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, it's so exciting. It's so weird to look down at my hand and see an engagement ring. Now I was only supposed to give him the engagement ring because there's a wedding band as well, um, which I guess you present during the wedding. But this is the part of me that's a traditionalist, like a like anti, not a space traditionalist, like a hyphen traditionalist in that I was like, you know what? These they're, they're meant to be stacked. I don't want to wait until our wedding. So we're both wearing the engagement ring and the wedding ring. We are engaged. Next step is planning a wedding. I don't know about that. That seems complicated, but we are going to get into that. But, you know, I didn't have a boyfriend. I've never had a boyfriend until Billy. I've never had a significant relationship. I had a relationship that in retrospect was inconsequential in the scheme of things. And so meeting Billy and having so many firsts play out with him, you know, um, through the years and having this person who I never get sick of and who I've learned, like learned to work through things with. I think I am someone throughout much of my life who's been quick to give up on things that, that challenge me. And I think he, this relationship has taught me a lot about, you know, moving through something as opposed to around it. And I think that that's so rewarding. And though I don't think like love is the answer, love is the solution, everyone needs love, that is not my mindset. I think having love in one's life, whether that be romantic, whether that be familial, friendship, whatever, I think that we can, there's a lot we can discover about ourselves through the process of loving. And that is something I'm incredibly grateful for. In addition to having a partner who really just like looks at me in such a, I've never been looked at the way Billy looks at me. And I think it, it often overwhelms me um, because I'm, I, you know, I don't see what he sees, but that's, that's not the point, right? It's like, we don't, we don't need to know why people feel about us the way that they feel. Um, but it's worth it to accept that feeling. Something to tie this all together that Cheryl Lee Ralph said in a lot of her postmortem press about the Emmy was that like, she, uh, feels the love. She like she feels like she's getting her flowers now. She feels it. And so it's one thing when people tell you how great you are or, or, or shower you with whatever, but if you can't yourself see it or feel it, it can kind of be for for what? And Cheryl was like, not only is, you know, not only did I win this Emmy and are all these great things happening for me at this moment, but I feel it. She's taking the moment to allow it to seep into her system. And I'm trying to do the same. I've tried to do that in my relationship, but especially now in this engagement, which is significant. I mean, there are not, this is a significant occasion in my life. Like, you know, this is a demarcator of time that we will always have. Um, September 10th will be my engagement. September 11th, you know, that's... A different date. Um, but yeah, no, I'm very glad that I didn't propose on September 11th. I feel like that would be, there's a duality there emotionally that I would not want to contend with. Anyway, I'm very, very happy. This is my engaged self. This is my voice in its engaged state. Um, everything you hear from me from here on out will be me engaged, which I love. Anywho, speaking of Emmys, today's guest was a nominee at the most recent ceremony. They are a two-time nominee. It's their very first role ever, and they've been nominated for two Emmy Awards for it for both seasons of their show, which, you know, to quote Mariah Carey, is difficult to do. Not everybody has that. So without any further ado, the fantastic Hannah Einbinder. She is the two-time Emmy-nominated star of the hit HBO Max series, Hacks. 
She won the Hollywood Critics Association Award for Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy in 2021. And if you're like me, you are chomping at the bit for season three of the show, which sees her starring opposite two-time Emmy winner Jean Smart. She made her national television debut in March of 2020 on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and in doing so became the youngest person to do a stand-up set on the show ever. It's an exciting time to be in conversation with her, as this very much feels like the beginning of what will no doubt be a long and exciting career on stage and in front of the camera. I am delighted for us all to have a chance to get to know her a little bit better. Here is the magnificent Hannah Einbinder. Shut up, Evan! Hi. Hi. I am delighted to finally be meeting you. I feel like I say that often. I say the it's a long time coming thing. But with you and I, it's particularly true. We have been trying to schedule this for some time. Both you and I have been challenging. This is not me putting blame on you. So I'm I'm glad that we were finally able to make it happen. It's just for the listener. Um, I did get a violent period that caused me to reschedule. Um, we've been playing phone tag a little bit. So we made it. This is triumphant for us. How are you feeling today? Are you feeling better? I am. I'm feeling better still sort of feeling it, but that's life. Still, nonetheless, I appreciate you taking the time today. And it's an exciting time. For those listening, you're going to be hearing this just after the Emmy Awards. You have the Emmy Awards coming up. It's your second nomination. All eyes are on Hacks. Is it 19 nominations? This is off the top of my head. It is 17. Ah, yes. 17. Sorry. Uh, if, if the show wasn't already beloved enough, the Television Academy just wanted to further affirm this. So I'm very excited for you and your colleagues. I do want to start today by dialing it back to March 7th, 2020. You made your debut on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and in doing so became the youngest comic to ever do a stand-up set. You know, folks, I don't know what it was like being a woman in the 30s, and I don't claim to, but I have cried while washing the dishes before, and I think that's close. (laughs) Thank you very much. Good night. And then a few days later, and I'm not saying you caused it, (laughs) but days later, the world shut down. And so I'm sure you had a lot of time to think about that set because in addition to being historic, it was a big moment for you, followed by a curtain coming down on the world. Yeah. So I'm wondering, can you walk me through your memories of that set? Yeah, so, um, and this I think is public knowledge at this point in time, but the way that Colbert sets used to be recorded was on a separate night, sort of like a lineup show where six comics would do their five minutes each for an audience that was meant to be, these clips would be cut into shows that run short on time. So Steven's not actually there. It's more so like just a lineup show. But at that time, and you know, since Hacks has come out, I feel like more like a, just a more trust, like the audience, when I do stand up, like the audience kind of is like, I know this person, I know that they're funny, I trust them. There's no sort of gaining their trust that I have to do, which, before Hacks and before Colbert, every night I had to gain the trust of strangers who at first were usually taken a little bit caught off guard um, by my style of comedy, specifically the set that I did on Colbert. Some audiences were kind of just like, what's happening? So that was obviously really fear inducing. 
just always. I mean, I was so nervous whenever I did stand up because of that lack of trust that we sort of have to build. But um, it was ultimately great. And those nerves always like kind of fall away from me after I get sort of my first laugh. It was a whirlwind. But the truth is that set aired the seventh, but, but I filmed it in 2019. Oh my God. Okay. The magic of television, as they say, yeah. you know, you mentioned that, that sort of like that moment, or, or I don't even know if it's a moment, but sort of like when the audience is clued into the style of your comedy. And that makes me think about like Hannah Gadsby, because I remember when I first watched Nanette before the hype of Nanette, it took me a little bit to understand not just the rhythm of the comedy, but this, as you say, the style of comedy. Do you, from your perspective as the comic, do you feel a moment when you can tell that the audience is plugged in or does it happen over time? I'm always sort of wondering about that from, from the perspective of the person on stage. Yeah, it, it's really crowd to crowd, but um, I can tell if they're going to be with me almost immediately um, based on how they respond to um, like my first word on stage, um, which is usually good evening. Um, I, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, there have been sets where, you know, you ramp up to it and you got to like loosen up and get into the crowd and break away from whatever you're doing to do crowd work, which is usually the remedy for a set that's not really going the way you want it to. But um, it really varies. Like, you know, I think like lighting has a big uh, sort of effect on how I perform. Like sometimes on stage, the crowd will be completely black and I can't see anything. It'll be just pitch dark. And um, those sets are worse for me. If I can't look into people's eyes, I have a worse set because it feels really, really lonely and isolating. I prefer to be able to see people and um, a good way to just like break up whatever I'm doing is crowd work, which I've been loving doing. Well, speaking of crowd work, uh, you just had your show, Hannah Einbinder and Friends, a few nights ago. So congratulations. I want to zero in on your wardrobe uh, for that show, a black t-shirt and black jeans. And I can tell by following you on social media that you are a very sartorially minded individual. I immediately am harkened back to the last Emmy Awards when you wore that stunning Prada, which podcasts are an audio medium. Please take a moment to Google this if you have not already seen it. I think it is a very important moment in red carpet history. Um, and so there's a lot of contrast there between what you wore on that set and what you wore to the Emmys. And obviously, they're different stages, but I'm always just so fascinated by what a comic chooses to wear during a stand-up set, because often there aren't costume changes. You know, I think Leah Michelle has something like 16 costume changes in Funny Girl, and that is, <laughs> that is not the case for most stand-up comedians. So can you talk about your choice for that show and just in general, how you think about fashion when it comes to stand-up comedy? Okay, and I'm going to answer that, but I first just want to say to you, you are so talented and such an interesting interviewer and asking me questions no one asks me, and I just want to clock that for, the, for everyone and for you and for me. Well, thank you. It is a very intentional choice on my part to look like shit on stage. Um, <laughs> I, I do it on purpose, 
just for anyone out there wondering. Um, I don't think that for me and for what I'm doing on on stage, uh, I love watching, you know, other comedians who incorporate incredible fashion into their sort of performance style. It is not a judgment on anyone else. I myself um, just don't believe that um, that should at all be the focal point of what I'm doing. I am not there to present my physical appearance and have that contribute to my material in, in any way. Um, I started off, there was a, another female comic in the comedy scene when I was doing open mics and she once to my face just asked me, um, do you dress like that on purpose? And uh, she meant like badly. And I was like, I mean, kind of like, I, I just, um, I, I understand the reality of playing comedy clubs. And I understand the reality of being a woman on stage. And I feel just a little bit more comfortable when I know for a fact that I'm going to be that the focus of my performance is going to be what I have to say and not what I look like. Um, I have a very new love for fashion and I think it's an incredible art form, um, but I just don't think stand-up comedy is the place for it for me. I appreciate you saying that your love of fashion is something new because I feel like so many people are trained to speak in a way that's like, I grew up, rifling through my mom's British Vogues. And it's like, that's just <laughs> not the case for a lot of people. I'm like you. I didn't even think about fashion until adulthood. But everyone I ever interview or talk to about fashion always gives this sense of it's so intrinsic to how they were brought up. It was always a part of their life. Or they were, while other kids were trading Pokemon, they were at the magazine store on Canal Street. And I'm just like, that was so not my experience. So yeah. that resonates with me. <laughs> now, Timothy Chalamet recently spoke at the Venice Film Festival and said that he believes that societal collapse is in the air. I think it's tough to be alive now. I think societal collapse is in the air. It smells like it. Do you agree? Uh, ooh, this is hard to answer only because um, there's so much to say. Like, uh saying that like using the word society implies that there was ever a functioning society in America. I think um, there never was. It's all a lie. It's like all always been horrific. I think, I don't know. I mean, yes, I, I understand what he's talking about. I think like people are really up in arms on, on both sides of the aisle and climate change is coming to a head um, as we know. Uh, so I, I understand what he's saying. And I, I certainly think, there's validity there, but I, I also think like fundamentally this has never worked. Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. The hot days of summer mean only one thing. I need a can of something and not just any something, a can of can. Can is the queer founded cannabis infused social tonic that is the summer beverage I cannot be without. Each can is made from five ingredients, fresh juice, herbs, agave nectar, cannabis extract, and water. The fresh juice is no BS either, with sourced ingredients like Sicilian lemons, Fijian ginger, and Massachusetts cranberries. Yum. My favorite flavor, you ask? Well, I'm currently a pineapple jalapeno kind of gal, but a cloudy apple rhubarb light always manages to hit the spot too. 
And look, it may not be the season of giving, but that doesn't mean you can't receive. Shut Up Evan listeners can receive 50% off their first order of can. Yes, that's 50% off. Go to drinkcan.com and use promo code ERK50. That's drinkcan.com, D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com, and use promo code ERK50 for 50% off. Let summer go to your head by sipping on some cans. And we're back. Well, from society's inevitable collapse to RuPaul's Drag Race, you and I (laughs) first connected over Instagram after your appearance on RuPaul's Drag Race All-Star 7. You were a guest judge this past season. Just have this cute energy, and it's so fun and so fun to watch. I'm like cute meets cute because you look so cute in this look. Thank you. And you did a terrific job. And I am really fascinated by the role of the guest judge on Drag Race. Um, For what it's worth, Drag Race has been pulling in icons from the outset. If you just look at season two, for instance, we got Cloris Leachman, Debbie Reynolds, and Martha Wash. But I bring this up because I think it's a difficult landing to stick. And for a number of reasons, You you have very little time and you either need to be funny, charming or helpful and you get extra points if you can be all three but you have to do all of that with very limited screen time not to mention the fact that you're working with these mega stars like rupaul and michelle michelle visage who have the rhythm and the cadence all and, and even the lines it's 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 very um they've got a method to it right they've been doing it for a while yeah. so i'm just wondering what that was like and i know you're a fan of drag race yeah. on top of it all which by the way we know when a guest judge is not a fan of Drag Race. It is very, very clear. Um, so I'm just wondering how you prepared for that moment and what it felt like being there as both a fan, but then also a contributor within the canon of Drag Race. Yeah, I mean... That's a long-winded question. I'm so sorry. I, I'm with you, though. I, I feel it. Because I am a, a viewer and because I am a fan, um, it felt a, like it just came naturally to me. I was not prepared for how shocked I would be to be standing, sitting before these queens. Like that was what threw me. I didn't realize it was going to affect me so (laughs) viscerally. Um, But I mean, I, I wrote my little, um, you know, do you prefer to give locally or globally? I go both ways. Like I, I, I wrote that in advance. Like I came with every tool that I possibly could just, it, it felt like in the moment as we were shooting all of like my viewership sort of felt like training for the moment. So I, I think like preparing was other than writing that line, like pretty minimal, just because I knew what I liked to see in a guest judge and what I liked to see on the show. And also because it's all stars, all winners, it's kind of a different ball game because you're not critiquing the girls at all. You know, no one's getting eliminated. It's, it's all for fun and love. So that was like the kind of dream come true of it all, just to have it be purely love. The preparation really came down to the look for me. Like I will say a credit to my hairstylist, Brian Fisher, RuPaul said, that is the best hair I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, oh my God. If I may talk about the look for a second, I just was like, this is our attempt at being like, okay, this is 
my sort of like drag version of suit of man exaggerated giant shoulder big angular jacket um you know baby blue for boy like sort of homage to drag and it just was so rewarding and fulfilling to be able to do it and have the girls be like love the look like I just was like are you fucking kidding me it was so cool because you were asked to give positive feedback but they didn't have to so the fact that they did yeah. <laughs> is like I feel like that's <laughs> a testament so I wanted to bring in our first guest to today's interview and I was thinking you know I should bring someone from Drag Race I thought about going to an All-Stars 7 contestant but there was another Drag Race alumni who just insisted that she call in oh my god Hi, Hannah. This is Katya. I'm a gay drag queen. Um, I was on TV. I am a huge fan of yours, as you probably are aware. Um, and thank you so much for, for starring in the most wonderful comedy ever to grace the small screen. Um, although at my house, the screen's pretty big, let me tell you. Um, but please tell the people at HBO if they cancel hacks, I will kill myself and write them in the suicide letter. Um, okay, so... Uh, you're amazing, and I have a question for you. My question is, Ali, Ben, and Carla made a total of 20 sandwiches, okay? But Ben made three times as many as Ali, and Carla made twice as many as Ben. So how many sandwiches did Ali make? <gasps> I'll take my answer off the air. You're amazing. Oh, my God. I love her. <laughs> let me let you know something, Katya. I have no idea what you just said. I am an attention deficit hyperactive disorder queen. I cannot do a lick of math. I appreciate that you even believe that I would be capable of solving that. I'm not. Um, but the, the love and affection means, means everything. And um, I don't think you'll have to take your own life anytime soon, which is great news. But wait, there's more. <laughs> okay, quick follow-up question, because that was for the SATs. <laughs> Would you get a bone broken every three years? Could be any bone in your body, but uh, one bone broken every three years. If you, in exchange, you never had to go to the bathroom again. So every three years, you get a bone broken. Can be by like a hitman or a doctor, and in exchange, <laughs> you would never have to poop or pee again. Would you do it? I love this question. Um, the answer is ultimately no. Because I feel like um, I would be so upset if I couldn't go to the bathroom. To me, going to the bathroom is um, a relief. It is a cleansing experience. It is meditation. It is um, ego death. And so for me, I would want to continue to go to the bathroom for those reasons. Um, and I, and I, I, I mean, I, the, if the question was something like, for you know uh, you know some some fabulous other alternative i think i i was starting to wrap my mind around getting a bone broken every three years because you'd have it down to a science you'd get the bone broken with heavy painkillers you'd immediately be at the hospital you'd get a cast and then you'd sort of just stay on the painkillers sort of until you got over the initial uh pain right um i've, I've broken a bone before so i, I think for for a, a more um alluring um, sort of option, I could see that as a possibility. I mean, I don't mean to critique the question asker, but I do think uh, 
I do think there's a more obvious answer in this particular case, just because, as you point out, I don't think that going to the bathroom is like a particularly awful experience. I mean, there are certainly times when I'm like, oh, I wish I didn't have to go right now, but I'm never like, God, I wish I had a bone broken. Yes. Um, that's never the sort of thought process. It's more just like, mm, I wish there was a nearby facility in which I could alleviate myself. But nonetheless, Katya, we appreciate the questions. Um, I recently had the great privilege of seeing your boyfriend Alex Edelman's show Just For Us, which largely centers on his experiences moving through the world having been raised in an Orthodox Jewish home outside of Boston. He talks in the show, for instance, about first discovering Christmas and Santa, which is something that throughout the show I was thinking, I had those same experiences and I've never thought about them since but i too remember having kids come into school and telling me about this guy named santa who they were very familiar with they'd met him and i had to learn about it and then kind of advance in my understanding of santa before my friends anyway all of this is in his show um you grew up in los angeles and i'm wondering when you first discovered that you were jewish Oh my, I don't think I ever discovered it. I think it was always, always a part of it, of my upbringing because I went to a Jewish preschool and it was just sort of like the very beginnings of my understanding of what the world was. Um, and because I grew up in LA in a very Jewish area, whereas Alex is like a, you know, a kid in Boston and he's sort of surrounded by the non-Jewish world. Um, I had the privilege of being around a lot of Jews. So I feel like it was always ingrained in my experience. How much would you say Judaism is a part of your cultural identity at this stage of your life? Um, it's a giant part of my identity. I think I have come to understand Judaism as something that is beyond faith in God and something that is more so rooted in sort of our ethno-religious identity as a people sort of united by this collective thing and and also you know unfortunately as anti-semitism soars um i feel it forces me deeper and deeper into my judaism as an act of defiance and resistance you know i've been radicalized by the Holocaust survivor visits that you get when you're a kid and by the you know incredible films depicting the Holocaust. I, I don't know that radicalize is is necessarily the word I want to use, but I think it, it is um, close to accurate to describe, you know, the sort of jolt to the system, to my system that I have felt in response to various pieces of art and experiences that I've had um, around Judaism and specifically around an element of Judaism that is a big part of it, which is oppression and sort of the systemic, uh, shall we say, murder of, of our, our peoples. Mm. And not for nothing. I mean, we are amongst the last, I don't even want to say generation because that's even more specific than that, but the last group of people who will be able to interface directly with Holocaust survivors. It becomes a different kind of history very shortly. In the, in the next few years, I have to imagine, in which there are no more living Holocaust survivors, and it becomes all, you know, we're telling other stories as opposed to hearing them directly. So I think it's um, 
for us specifically at our age, I think, yeah, I too grew up hearing from Holocaust survivors directly. And I think I think a lot of people can relate to this. Not a lot of people. I think some people can relate to this outside of Judaism in the sense of hearing about a specific kind of history from those who lived through it, as opposed to hearing about it or reading about it from secondhand sources. So yeah, definitely uh, I relate to a lot of what you're saying. Now, speaking of Alex's show, it is my hope, and I think the hope of many, that you two will one day do something together <laughs> on stage, kind of like an Elaine May, Mike Nichols situation. You are two powerhouses in the world of comedy that, to my knowledge, you have not yet collaborated on any works that have been for public consumption. I could be wrong. No. So is this something that the two of you have ever discussed? We once discussed something like that, which was a show revolving around two different tellings of the same story. I mean, Alex and I run our jokes by each other all the time. And so we'll get sort of like notes from each other and tags and punch up and things like that. Um, so we are collaborative in that way. But other than that, we haven't really talked about doing something like that. Although the Nichols and May uh, reference is making me want to do it, actually. <laughs> That's the duo that I thought of as soon as I came up, came away from he, from seeing his show. Um, speaking of Alex Edelman, I have another call in. Hannah Einbinder, it is your beloved boyfriend, Alex Edelman, and I would just like to know, if you were going to have a theoretical dream house, what are five items that you would absolutely require the architects to install? And no, you cannot have the Diet Coke machine that Jean has in her home in Hacks. That's fun. That's fun. <laughs> That's fun. Um, things in the house that I would want. Oh, not things. Five things. He's very specific. In very Alex Edelman fashion. Yeah, very specific. Five things installed in the house. Um, I would have to say um, an infrared sauna. Hmm. That would be incredibly healing and cool. I fear most of these things will be in the wellness space, but um, I would love a Beauty and the Beast library. That would be cool. Um, the ladder, you know, that's totally we're big. Um, but you need one that's like really well lubricated because yes. I feel like the reality of many of those ladders is they never move as quickly as they do in the musical numbers in Beauty and the Beast. Absolutely. And you don't want to put that, you know, your full weight on them. You want to sort of totally glide and, and the, the infrastructure would have to support uh, the weight any any person. Yeah, no, Belle was very life. So I think that she was able to move very easily. Yeah, no, um, I hear you. Yeah, she was two dimensional. I think that's a different story. I think we would need more um, support there. But uh, okay, so those two, um, a really high tech ice maker that could make a variety of ice in different consistencies. That would be cool. Um, I would say, uh, ooh, maybe a pool that had a glass bottom that was the ceiling of another room. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I'm at four now. You're at four. But I've, you've delivered on all four so far, so I'm really impressed. Yeah. I'm just riffing here. No, no pressure on the fifth, but I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I would love the closet from Clueless that Cher has. Period. Now, do you want the technology to be updated or do you want the 1990, is it 1996 is Clueless? I believe it's 96, 95, excuse me. Do you want the 1995 technology of the closet or do you want it updated? 
I do want the 99, 1995 technology of the closet because I believe that that technology is a projection of a future technology. Absolutely. Hannah, can I tell you in this answer, which uh, credit to Alex and credit to you both, because it's like, you know, you have the setup and then you have the punchline, if you will. Uh, <laughs> but no, you just proved your like longevity in this Hollywood sphere to me, because it's like any anyone less capable would have given five because five is a lot to ask. You gave five specific answers off the cuff. And I, I, I genuinely, like, I respect that so much. That is so impressive. I get nervous asking people sort of questions that make them have to brainstorm. Like, what is the most blah, blah, blah? Because you just worry that it's like, it's in real time. They're having to go into the memory bank. And in this case, actually be like creative. And you gave five. So hats off. Thank you. Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we're back. Now, let's talk about uh, some of your early life. Your parents met in AA, and I have to imagine that impacts your own relationship with alcohol and with overconsumption. And so I'm wondering, was alcohol something that you discussed in your household? So my parents met in AA, but like many people in AA, they were drug addicts. They did not, they were not, alcohol was actually not specifically either of their problems. And so there was always a lot of talk about drugs and their drug use and their personal stories. And I mean, everything from the way they got started on drugs to their bottom. I mean, from a very, very, very young age, uh, an age so young, you'd be like, is that appropriate? Um, uh, but it, it really uh, instilled a lot of, I would say, warranted fear in me. Um, as a kid, I think, um, I, you know, I've never done any hard drugs in my life. Um, I, other than prescription Adderall, which I was prescribed as a teen um, for school, um, and a lot of marijuana, I never have dabbled in the Coke, the Molly, the any of, <laughs> you can tell because I call it the Coke and the Molly. That is an indicator. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of... <laughs> The moon rocks. I don't know what the kids are doing. Uh, I've I've not done really anything outside of that. Um, I think uh, you know I don't. I actually don't drink alcohol because it makes my stomach hurt. Um, <laughs> literally, that's the reason. Um, and so, really, where addiction manifests for me is around um, sugar and uh, emotional addictions. Um, you know, I've had sort of sex and love addiction stuff in the past. And um, I think like mainly sugar is a big 
uh, thing for me um, because it's it's it tickles the brain in the same way as many drugs do. A lot of people who get sober transfer their addiction to food and sugar. That's like almost recommended. The the sort of like withholding a lot of sugar and then binging like that was sort of something that was modeled in our house, and so that was something that I sort of latched onto. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm aware of it, and you know. I kind of am, I'm working on it. You know, I've been thinking a lot about disordered eating lately and how much there is a lack of language around it because I feel like we're sort of, I don't know, I shouldn't say we. I was taught about anorexia and bulimia as being like the two eating disorders and you either have them or you don't have them. Yeah. But I've kind of learned about this this concept of disordered eating, which I would say the majority of people have in some varying degree. And once I sort of shifted my lens on how I think about it, I'm able to observe both in myself and others on the regular, a lot of disordered eating, which does not necessarily mean they have a disease of some kind, Mm -hmm. but it does mean that like, yes, there's ways in which we live our lives differently because we are, um, you know, uh, we are beholden to some idea of how we think we need to satiate ourselves or not satiate ourselves it's just it's a very fascinating topic that i think deserves more conversation in general absolutely absolutely understanding the nuance of all of these various styles of eating and how i would say you know growing up in america in a culture where you know um, the image is so important i think that's that like you said disordered eating is rampant in our society Right. And we talk about sort of like, oh, the beauty standards in our society and everything. But there's also standards around self-care, including, you know, um, food and and consumption, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's talk about hacks. Um, I want to kick off that conversation by bringing in another guest. Oh, my God. Hi, Hannah. Cheyenne Jackson here. Uh, Ooh, I sound very phone sexy all of a sudden. Um, (laughs) First of all, I just wanted to say that I'm a huge fan of you. I think that you are possibly one of the most um, naturally spontaneous actors working today. I love watching you on Hacks with Dame Jean Smart. Um, And I should probably disclose that I did share a hair and makeup trailer with Jean Smart on one episode of The Watchmen, so I... We're practically besties. I feel like I should get that out there. Um, But I did see an interview with Jean Smart recently where she talked about your casting on Hacks and how she knew immediately you were the one for the part. And my question to you is, I'm interested in what the audition process was like for you and when did you know that you were the one? And when did you know that the two of you were clicking? Because I think the success of the show really hinges on us buying your relationship and loving seeing you together and we do and it does so um i would love to hear what that was like for you all right thank you oh hi cheyenne um thank you i think there's a difference between when did i know gene and i had chemistry and when did i know i was the one i did not know i was the one for many months into shooting i was terrified that i would be fired i was very um, paranoid and nervous that I was doing a bad job. Uh, I would cry all the time. I (laughs) really have a distorted dysphoric view of myself, folks. Um, And I know that now and I'm working on it. Uh, And that's my shit. 
and that's my shit. But um, Gene and I had instant chemistry. That was undeniable. That was something that I never, um, that I was always very clear on. Um, she's just one of the most open and loving, connected actors. And so I, I don't doubt that she could have that chemistry with anyone, but I have to say that like on my end, it's not something that I have ever felt um, so easily before, um, both on screen and off. Um, so it was pretty instant. I mean, in our screen test, you know, we kind of, we, we had to do a lot of sparring. So like, it really felt like, you know, every sort of jab that the next, you know, the other person mm. threw at the other person was um, welcomed and, and topped and just continually topped. And it just felt, um, yeah, that's right. Jean topped me. Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> that sort of coy, uh, jousting, the sort of fencing of it all, um, really was like, ah, a worthy opponent. It makes me think about what we were talking about earlier with the comedy sets of like that that moment when you can feel the audience settling in. I often think about that scene in the pilot episode between the two of you at her mansion uh, when you two spar for the very first time. I think you better leave. Yeah. Can I show you to the door? Would you like to go back up the chimney? Oh, no, I know my way out. By the way, so cool they let you move into a cheesecake factory. Oh, is that where you wait tables? That seems like a better fit. Oh yeah, I agree, you classist monster. And I think that that is one of those exhale moments from the audience of like settling into what the show is going to be. Like after you watch that scene, it's like, I'm in. Like I get it. It's like the premise is fully laid out in that scene. And best of all, you want more of it. It's like you enjoyed what you saw and you're craving more, which is a testament to you both and Paul and Lucia and all the people on this show. But I, I, I love that scene. Now, coming out of the season two finale, there was a bit of a series finale feel to that. And in very HBO fashion, uh, we did not get the announcement of season three until a week after the season two finale. So we were left to, and when I say we, I mean this uh, very loud and vocal fan base, we're left to wonder, would we be seeing Ava and Deborah again? Um, thankfully, we are, uh, and and I'm, we're very excited. I'm wondering if you can step out of your role on the show for a moment to answer the next question through the lens of an audience member. Where would you, the audience member that I'm speaking to right now, like to see Deborah and Ava go in the next chapter of this show? You know, I would like to see a climactic reunion, a um, big apology scene, um, the sort of, you know, it's raining and, you know, Deborah's kind of just like, you know, I'm sorry, okay. And Ava's like, you left me. And it's like this whole blowout thing. And then they have kind of like, they, you know, they kind of just like reunite. And, you know, obviously the gang's all there. And, you know, maybe Deborah's stopping Ava from getting on a flight. You know, it's very uh, sort of, she's she's crossing the, the, you know, the little dividers in between the trains on a New York subway, you know, in her heels, you know, she's doing some sort of ac acrobatic feat and the crowd is going, how is she doing this? And she's doing it nonetheless. And she's, you know, sort of rushing to get Ava in the middle of a, a, a train and she's, you know, taking out her headphones like, 
Deborah, what are you doing here? And they have this sort of like really climactic reunion. And then um, I would love for them to have to immediately get back to work, getting more DJ and getting more Marcus and Damien and, you know, all of the people in that world that are so incredible in the show. And um, just uh, obviously would love for Weed to make a little cameo somehow. We need her back. We demand Weed. Bring back Weed. Yeah, now... I, I love a season three. It's my favorite season of Buffy. It's my favorite season of Sex and the City. It will be my favorite season of The Comeback. And so I'm wondering if going into this third season, the reason I, I, I want to ask specifically is because, you know, you start filming season one, you don't know what people are going to think, right? Then in your case, it's a huge hit. So you're filming season two. And the question is, well, can we do it again? In this case, you stuck the landing. You did it again. So I think with the season three, again, I'm not an actor, but I would imagine there's a little bit more of a relief in knowing that it wasn't lightning in a bottle. Do you feel differently going into this season as an actor? I had a lot of fear going into season two. Um, a lot of pressure because now there was this fan base and I was so desperate to not let them down. There was just that pressure of the eyes and, and, and the industry of... Um, all of the things around making the show itself that I did not consider the first season, I wasn't concerned with or aware of awards or press or any of these institutions that surround the work but are not the work, um, but, but are ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so sort of the awareness of that got in my head a little bit, honestly. And I, I had to, at, at some point during shooting season two, I think it was honestly the day that I just like let everything go with when we shot that diner scene. I think from then on, I was like, okay, I'm in it. Now I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I, I do this thing where I record a video of myself talking on like the last week of shooting. I did it season one and I'd done it season two. And it's basically just messages to my future self. Of like, here's what I learned. Here's what I wish I did differently. Um, here is what you may need to hear when you go back into shooting. Mm -hmm. And so I think for season three, I, I, I do feel a little more ease and I feel a little more like I have the tools and the lessons from one and two. And I have the faith of, of like the fan base, which I feel like they are a sophisticated group who do not like this. They are, they are like TV aficionados. Yeah. You got good fans with hacks and not to disparage other fan bases, which are great as well, but I feel like there's a, the Hacks fans are, it feels non-toxic in a way that many fan bases can feel incredibly toxic. Yeah, I think so too. I really think so too, because we're depicting so many existences and professions yeah. that are so hard to depict. And so people being on board with the members of these groups means that we've done it, that the writers have done it well. Yeah, it reminds me of Susie Essman's character in season two, which is so hyper-specific. And it's not always laugh-out-loud funny because it feels like it's towing that line between making her funny, but also making her real to how a comedy show director would operate. That even me, someone outside of the industry, feels like I know that, that feels like it would be, even though who am I to say, but... It's done, that's it, such a, a balancing act that this show does so well. I'm wondering, again, I'm gonna do the thing that I said I don't like when people do, but is there a throwaway joke of Ava's that you really, really like? And I say throwaway because 
so much of what I like about hacks is the levels of comedy. Um, one that comes to mind for me, a joke that I'm always thinking about from hacks is in season one, when Ava says, everyone in LA has such good style. Everyone in LA has such good style. I can't tell who's Haim and who's just three people. To which the hostess responds, Haim is actually on tour right now, so. I love that you know that. Which is such a specific joke, so good. <laughs> um, but are there any throwaways that for you are just ones that you find yourself repeating or that just stay with you? Oh my God, a million. Um, how to pick the best one. In season one, um, there is a moment that was truly a throwaway joke that like, the reason I love it is because when I, like when I improvised it, Paul, Jen and Lucia were like, okay, we, sorry, we got to move the camera. We got to get that in the wide. Like they wanted to cover it. And I was like, like the, their approval and like sort of like them liking a joke of mine and putting it in the show is like makes me utterly melt so um we did the whole scene where Deborah um runs into Ava in the bowels of the casino and she's drunk and Ava's with George played um beautifully by Jeff Ward um Ooh. Yeah, that was really something. Um, Deborah's sort of going like, oh, wow, finally a woman. Like, you're wearing a dress. Wow, I, I don't think I've ever seen you not wearing pants. Would somebody die? Yeah. Oh, you want to talk about clothes? You look like you let a tailor loose in an antique carpet store. And I immediately just, like, thought of it based on what, honestly, what she was wearing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring in our last call-in uh, because you just mentioned him, <gasps> the great Paul W. Down. Hello, Evan. Hello, Hannah. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Hannah, it's me, Paul W. Downs, and I have a question for you. Where were you on January 6th? Just kidding. Uh, my real question is, I'd love to know how you got into competitive cheer and what your greatest achievement or memory as a cheer person was. Thank you for using cheer person. Um, I appreciate that. I saw the movie Bring It On at a very young age, too young, most would argue. Um, really explicit content in that one. Um, and it changed my life. I'm one of these people who's very impressionable. I saw Bring It On, I became a cheerleader. I saw Food Inc, I became a vegan. Okay, well, don't watch Euphoria. <laughs> <laughs> Copy that. Um, I saw Bring It On, it changed my life. I became a competitive cheerleader. I was a part of a gym called Victory Cheer Company. I believe they're now called Victory Cheer. They're based in Pasadena, California. Please feel free to YouTube Victory Cheer. You can probably find a video of me as a youth um, flipping around. Um, cheerleading was a big part of my identity. It was um, truly my purpose for many years. It was all I cared about. Um, it was something that I, that I had to stop doing um competitively in high school because it I just was not my grades were suffering honestly and so I sort of joined the high school team which was not on the level of what we were doing um at the competitive gym um but my team won a lot like we we just didn't get second place we just simply won a lot and so I would say collectively winning <laughs> um, was a great, great memory. I also like loved being a part of a group of girls who were just like so sweet and 
and lovely. And um, I was really like, I, I had like trouble with like girly relationships when I was a kid. Like I very much was like singled out as like the weak sensitive one and thus very bullied and picked on. And this was like the first group of girls who were just sweet and lovely and embraced me and were some of my best friends. Um, and also frankly, like our coaches were brutal. Like they were rough and intense and nothing short of perfection was uh, accepted. And ultimately, I don't know that, like, I think I could be nicer to myself, but I think a lot of my really high standards um, and possibly high standards, frankly, come from my foundation as a cheerleader. Mm. That just like ends up playing a big role in, in the way that I work. With no disrespect to Hayden Penetiere or Solange <laughs> Knowles, I'm curious if you ever wish that we had gotten I don't want to say a proper sequel, but a sequel starring Kirsten Dunst and Gabrielle Union that featured more of the cast from the Peyton Reed original film. Not only do I feel that way, it's not too late. It's not too late. It's not, especially in the case of those two women who, I know we say this about a lot of people, but like they reverse age, if anything. You could literally pick it up and be like, yeah, this is the following week or- <laughs> This is the following week. What's Jesse Bradford up to? I mean, get him on the phone, Eliza Dushku. I mean, yeah, no, I, um, but I, I, I understand. There's something about that movie that I, though I did not go into competitive cheer leading, um, I can understand why that inclination would have, that, that movie had so much going for it and it, it looked fun. And to your point too, it's like, they were this collective. They were there for each other. Um, they supported each other, not just on the, is on the mat. Am I using the terms correctly? On the mat. On the mat. Okay, so I want to end with this question. A question that I hope, like the what's it like being a woman in comedy question, will be soon seen as reductive as well. Um, but I'm wondering what it's like being a bisexual person in comedy. Hmm. There is a moment in Alex Edelman's Just For Us, and it's blink and you miss it, uh, in which he reveals the fact that he is bisexual by talking about an attraction to men. Because up until that point, we're hearing about his attraction to women. And I love that moment. And I've been thinking about that moment a lot because in that moment, it's a coming out if you don't in fact know that he's bisexual. And I, it's also not a joke and it's not a part of the act in any way. It's just him talking about the fact that he had a crush on men as, as well as women. Um, and you are a bisexual woman in comedy. And I'm just wondering what that is like. Uh, because I came up in comedy at a t in 2017 in a post me too world i really had a good time i really cannot sit here and tell you that it was really just so hard for me it wasn't i was incredibly privileged to be in a scene in los angeles with a ton of queer people and a and an alternative scene with alternative spaces where i was accepted and welcomed in like we really did create our own world you know, I absolutely know for a fact that when it is harder to be a woman doing comedy, um, and of course a queer woman and so on and so forth. But uh, I, I myself had a really, um, really supportive and incredible experience coming up in the LA scene. Only like two of my peers have been shitty to me <laughs> as a result of uh, name them. <laughs> name them. <laughs> yeah. I think another thing too about hacks that I think resonates with so many people, perhaps in ways that they're not even aware, is that it's not a queer show explicitly, but it is an incredibly queer show, arguably one of the queerest shows on television. 
And that is so interesting because we live in a culture, I feel, that is very explicit often Mm -hmm. in its uh, representation of otherized or historically otherized people. And hacks, it's just like, you even have characters like Weed who are not written (laughs) to be explicitly queer and yet... I don't know. I'm getting a vibe. Yeah. Um, but it's just like Deborah's world is enmeshed with queerness, despite the fact that she's kind of vaguely homophobic at times. But I think this is this show is helping to widen the possibility of what queerness can look like on screen. And I love what you just said about Hacks is queer, but in no sort of like explicit way. And that's what I feel about my own experience as a queer comedian. Like it wasn't like an overarching, yes, it exists in my material and my identity and what I talk about and who I am and who I present as in the world. But um, I just was accepted. I also just want to shout out, I mean, look at the casting of the lesbian um, cruise ship, for instance, and take a look around at that room and how, how, what that room looks like. I just, again, talk about implicit ways of just showing off that like, this is a community that does not look like one certain kind of way. And there's lots of shapes and colors and sizes and ages and all these things. So that's another way, which it's again, background actor casting matters, you know, when telling stories. And that's another example of that. Hannah, I want to thank you so very much. This has been incredibly illuminating. You are one special human being. And I just want to say, because I get to have your ear in this moment, on behalf of the Hacks fan community, of which I am proudly a member, thank you so much for the gift that is this show. Um, We love it. We are so glad that you are a part of it. And we are so excited that HBO has granted us the privilege of having more. Thank you. I am I am honored to serve. <laughs> it is my honor. It is the honor of my life. Thank you, Evan. You are everything and more. Thank you. I hope to meet you when I'm in LA next or when you're in New York next or at some point. We'll do a, a Shabbat. Oh my God. Love that. <laughs> All right, enjoy the rest of your day, and I cannot wait to be tuning in. Uh, I was going to say Sunday. It's Monday, weirdly. Monday night, I wish you and the entire team all the best. I'm excited for you to see what I'm wearing. I cannot wait. Also, sorry, one last thing, but, like, I work with Prada sometimes, and they are just so selective about... I don't even know if you know... Like, the fact that you wore Prada says a lot about the fashion industry's what what they feel about you. I don't think many people get to wear Prada. Well, thank you. You know what? My stylist and I literally were like, oh, we would love to do this Jackie Kennedy reference. And then they had the exact dress. Like it was, it was really, Stunning. we were like, oh, it's that thing with the, she's at this dinner and it's a black and white photo. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, oh yeah, this, we have that dress. Perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. Well, looking yeah. forward to the next one. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Bye Evan. Bye. Thank you. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.